All right, turn to Acts chapter 14. We're continuing on in our series on Acts. Before I start reading, um, this weekend, uh, starting at dinner time on Friday and, and to mid-afternoon on Saturday, um, we had a, a retreat for our elders and for our staff to really meet together and pray and look forward to not just the coming year, but the coming five years and talk about who we're supposed to be and who God is calling us to be. And I don't have anything to tell you about that meeting, uh, series of meetings right now. What I wanted to tell you is that you have a lot of people um, on your side, on your team, who gave away nearly 24 hours of their weekend to talk for a long time, to worship, to pray, and praying for you, and praying for where we are going together as a church. It's a privilege for me to be with the folks that were in that room, and I'm proud to be able to serve with them as elders, as staff people in our church, and I'm excited about what God is doing now in our church and what God is going to do in this valley through our church in the next five years, but we would certainly appreciate your prayers, um, that we would continue to be faithful and obedient, listening to the Holy Spirit and moving forward in courage and conviction to do what he's called us to do. But I was leaving on Saturday and profoundly grateful for the kinds of people that God has called to lead in our church, and I hope that you are too. Um, so if you see an elder, if you see a deacon, if you see a staff member, you know, just high five, fist bump, something. Um, let them know that you're praying for them and grateful for them as well. All right, Acts 14, starting at the first verse. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, they were, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God 
who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word We thank you that is powerful and effective because it comes from you. We pray, God, that we would treat it as your word, that we would be attentive and listen because it's your word. And God, I pray that because it's your word and not mine, that you would help me to speak in accordance with your scriptures, that all of our hearts together might be stirred to love you and more faithfully follow you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This uh, phase of the book of Acts, Paul is moving forward in his call to move out of primarily Jewish communities and into the places where non-Jewish people are, Gentiles. And previously he was in Antioch in the center of Turkey and he's moving um, on this missionary journey, and trouble is following him. People literally are following him from city to city to continue to make trouble for him, and there is this continued conflict where he is preaching. And the crowds appear at first, when you start reading it, to be divided between Jew and Gentile. Uh, And it seems maybe at first reading that the Jews are the bad guys and the Gentiles are the good guys, but that's not true um, because people are responding to the gospel in the synagogues, they're Jewish, and people are responding to him in the streets. And then people from the synagogues are responding by throwing rocks at him and people in the streets are joining in. And so the division is not so much on ethnic or racial lines, it cuts across a different dividing line, which is this um, mysterious line of belief and trust in what Paul is saying. And Paul is pursuing this call, and we get to see one stage of it in the initial section of this text, and he moves on to the next city as he kind of gets bounced out by by, uh, rejection. And so the actual action happens that we see here, starting at verse 8. At Lystra. And Paul is preaching, and there is a man who's listening, who's crippled from birth. And Luke tells this story in such a way to kind of mirror a similar story that Peter is involved in at the beginning of the book of Acts. There's a lot of crossover of the vocabulary, and Luke wants you to see 
that just like Peter preaches the gospel with authority and with power, Paul is doing the same thing. It's not a competing task. They're on the same team. And this man who is sitting there and listening intently, Paul looks at and he truly sees him on the margins of the crowd. And he tells him to stand up. And for whatever reason, by the power of the Holy Spirit, this guy doesn't just get up. He springs up and he walks around for the first time. And the whole crowd can see what is happening. And in that moment, there is this shift to misunderstanding. The crowd rightly understands that something divine has happened. They are correct. Something supernatural, something divine has occurred. But they have yet not received or understood what Paul is teaching or about to teach. So they put that understanding into the only kind of box mentally that they have. And they say, these two guys must be the embodiment of Zeus and Hermes. And so they are ready not just to uh, uh, celebrate what has happened, but to sacrifice to them. And there's this kind of misunderstanding what's going on. Paul and Barnabas are lagging behind the action because these people are speaking their regional dialect. And Paul and Barnabas don't speak that language. They're just speaking the Greek that they know. So it takes them some time to understand why the crowd starts going nuts and start going to find animals to kill at their feet. And they finally pick it up. They finally understand what is going on. And they rip their garments in grief. This is a, a traditional sign of blasphemy. And they rend their garments in mourning that God has been blasphemed. Now, we should pay attention to Paul and Barnabas' reaction and have the text uh, interrogate us a little bit. Because their reaction is that these people have misunderstood and begun to believe that Paul and Barnabas are themselves gods. And the reaction is, is so intense because they are so repelled by that idea that they would think that these two people are gods. And yet, isn't it true that you and I probably spend a great deal of our own time begging to be treated as if we are gods? Now, we may not have seen people rushing towards us with bulls about to be sacrificed at our feet and say, this is cool, I deserve this, because that doesn't really happen with how people worship gods in our day and time. But if people were to sort of gather around us and treat us as something special, as the most special thing, not only in my life, but their life, we would probably be like, this is fine. And you really begin to see it in your own life when the opposite happens. When people don't treat you this way is when it's really exposed within you how much you deeply want it to be so. And you experience that in the mundane everyday of your life, probably with people that you live with or in close relationship with most often. Because they have the audacity to fail to identify how deeply important and special and precious you are. And when they do not perceive all of your own desires and needs without you having to say a word about it and instead live their lives as if, literally, God forbid, you are not God, then you and I become offended. 
And we rend our garments, not because they have misunderstood us to be gods, but because they have not treated us as gods. This is what household arguments look like. This is why we have conflict with our spouses, with our friends. It's because we deeply desire the kind of recognition that only gods deserve. But Peter and Barnabas's heart, Paul and Barnabas's hearts are rightly in, aligned. And truly what they want most is that these people of Lystra would rightly see who the God is. Now, we've just come out of, out of Missions Month and spent a, a month talking about what it means to be on mission with God, to be sent by God to the ends of the earth and, and, and up the street. And we anticipate this misunderstanding. In fact, we acknowledge that we are called into it. But we should notice the kind of reaction and the kind of message that Paul gives at this misunderstanding. Because when we imagine, uh, when we imagine mission, we often imagine combat. We often imagine that we need to be able to best the people arrayed against us and somehow be able to do enough mental and philosophical judo that we can wrestle them to the ground and sort of force them into believing what we believe. And a lot of us are, are pushed in to isolation and to non-mission by a variety of factors, mostly things like busyness, but also this fear when combat comes and these people misunderstand the nature of the real God, I won't be able to do the right maneuvers to compel them to surrender to Jesus. And we amp ourselves up for this kind of combat and, and fight as if we are prepared to hear the misbelief, the wrong belief of the people around us and we're not quite sure if we can properly express the anger that their beliefs deserve. But the way that Paul responds is not combative. It is, in fact, marked by a different kind of plea and appeal. First, Paul grieves. He, this sign of, of blasphemy is a kind of grief that God is not being honored for who he is, and that these people don't know him. And then what is the message that he preaches to them? It is primarily a message that God is far more kind than they yet understand. That they think God is like these fickle Greek gods who are basically just people with superpowers. And what they don't understand is that the God that made heaven and earth has for a long time let people just kind of do their thing. But that season is coming to an end. But even in the time when God was letting even these people of Lystra do what it was that they wanted to do, he still showered his kindness on them. He brought seasons of fruitfulness to the earth, that they might enjoy it, and that they might benefit from it. Now, we anticipate that this is the moment where we step and say, 
I am not God. I am not Zeus and Hermes. This is the superiority and the power of my God over and above Zeus and Hermes. And this is why all these arguments are way better than yours. And all those things can be true and are true. But the the tool that Paul reaches for is instead a demonstration of God's goodness and his kindness. Now, he doesn't get to finish his speech. They're, They're done with him and done with it. And though they misunderstand, some are still trying to sacrifice to him. Others are just tired of letting him talk and they shut down the speech and they kick him out of town. We fail to recognize and to remember what Paul teaches in the epistle to the Romans. That it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And notice, Paul is not saying, it's cool what you do, it's cool what I do, everybody's just kind of buddy-buddy, do what you like. That's not Paul's message. But we feel like there's only two options. You either have the sort of hippy-dippy, everything counts as true way, or the I have to crush you way. And Paul is presenting a different kind of way, both in his epistle to the Romans and in this scenario, where he's saying, no, there really is only one and true God, and you ought to repent and come to know him. But here is who he is, so that you might want to do that. God is so generous to you that even when you rejected him, he faithfully and regularly brought fruit to your table. Even when you fail to recognize him. And what I think is, is that when we see that message combined with Paul's healing of the man, what we're supposed to see is that this healing is entirely in keeping with God's nature. This is not a a, a hard right turn. I didn't see that coming from God. What we're supposed to see is actually this is what God does all the time. Is that he heals people, he blesses people, he showers his goodness and his grace on people who largely fail to recognize him. And he's going to continue to do it for these people of Lystra, no matter their response to God in that very moment. And what we see in in this whole chapter and throughout the book of Acts and Paul's story is, is that this message is met with violence and opposition. Many of the people cannot handle the proclamation of this good God. And they pick up rocks, and they stone him, and they leave him for dead. And if you read 2 Corinthians, Paul will provide a list for you of how many times this kind of thing has happened to him. This is not the only time, it will not be the last time. And for us, we can look at that result and say, Paul must have done something wrong in the process or else this wouldn't be the result. Or oftentimes in our lives we think, well, if I had done the right thing, if I had done the God-approved thing, then I would have good outcomes. Then I would not suffer like this. But the consistent message throughout the book of Acts and indeed all of Scripture is, oftentimes, obedience to God And the outcome are completely untethered. That though it would make sense to us that doing the right thing for God would mean success of all kinds. It is often the most faithful people in scripture who experience suffering as they obey.
The, the real truth of the matter is that a proclamation that a, a sovereign and providentially and overwhelmingly kind and generous God is a message that is implicitly, intrinsically a threat to the kingdom of darkness. That, that it, it really, it doesn't matter how sophisticated your theological and apologetic judo is or how simply and wonderfully you proclaim the goodness and kindness of God. The news, the announcement that this good God is intervening in the world is a threat to the slavery and the tyranny of these false gods. And the response is assault. And the people of God throughout Scripture feel this and receive it in their own body. And they are called not to interpret their suffering as a sign of their failure, but instead as a sign of their participation in the kingdom. That in fact, they are on the right track. See, this is the opposite of how we naturally interpret the world. When things go poorly, I must have done something wrong. But the apostles see this thing happen to them and say, something has gone profoundly right. And the reason is that within the context of the church, we have to have a very clear understanding of the nature of the God that we proclaim. So that when we face misunderstanding, we are not looking at one another and saying, am I losing my mind Am I, am I on the wrong track here? Because your eyes have to be put one place if you are going to continue to endure and to be on mission with Jesus and proclaim this kind of generous and faithful God. Your eyes have to be on the cross. Because when the people of the cross have their eyes fixed on the cross... None of this becomes surprising. The misunderstanding of the people is that they understand what power actually looks like. And they think the most powerful thing that they could see or experience or obtain is what has happened to this crippled man with his feet. But the surprising news that Paul and Barnabas are asking them to see and to believe is that the greatest healing that God would offer to the world is in his own broken and bloody body. That the healing of God that he offers to the world, to these people of this city and to every city, to our city, into our valley, is in the surprising announcement that in God's own suffering, the kingdom of God finds its flourishing. So that when the apostles themselves receive suffering inside and to their own bodies, they are able to spread their arms and say, these are the signs of the advancing kingdom. It is not our right and our expectation 
that we should dominate and subjugate people into bending the knee to Jesus. It is our expectation that faithfully proclaiming the God who suffered and died and was rose again for his people would lead us to be a kind of people that would also suffer with and for others. So it is not in the sign of our own power and conquest that we expect to see the kingdom spread. It is a sign, and we expect to see it in the sign of our own tears. That we might be able to faithfully proclaim with our lips and with our lives that this is what the generosity of God looks like. That even when you fail to recognize him, God will relentlessly and without asking your permission, send the rain and bring the harvest. And even in the moment when you pick up your weapons to crucify him, when you pick up the rocks to destroy his people, he will send the rains and bring the harvest. Because this is the surprising nature of the God that Paul proclaims. And this kind of text is an invitation to reconsider where we ourselves have misunderstood. How have we misunderstood what it means to be on mission with God? Are we the kind of people that proclaim this relentless generosity? Are we the kind of people who would insist... No, it's, it's not like everybody believe what they want to believe. It's actually just all about the Jesus who was crucified on the cross and then resurrected. Are we the kind of people that are willing to put our own lives on the line? And in the context in which we live, that likely does not mean that you will be bruised and battered in the streets. What it will likely mean is that you have to lay aside your own ambitions in your career and the usage of your free time and the comforts that you gather around yourself, and the friendship circles that you give to yourself? Are we the kind of people who say, I, I, I know that I could have this thing, but I know that the generosity of God is, on, is, is spreading to the edges of my community. I know that my eyes need to be on the crippled guy who nobody sees on the edge of the crowd, and I have to move towards that person. So my suffering will actually be probably not being nearly stoned to death. It will be saying, I have to say no to that good thing or to that comfort that I love or whatever it is to go after that person. Is that kind of forsakenness that we are willing to embrace marking each of our lives as a testimony to the generosity of God? And it, it may be that this kind of text must interrogate us so that we have to tell the truth. I, I've actually arranged my whole life so that both I and everybody else can offer their sacrifices to me. The, the truth is that I've been so gripped by the fruit and the, the evidence of power and comfort that my life really is a testimony that I believe I am a God. And if that's you, you're in very good company. Because the truth is it, is, it is our nature. 
is our inclination and our habit to regularly bring people to worship us. And you may be seeing it in a variety of ways right now. It may just be a feeling. It may be an honest analysis of your life and who all those things are for that you're doing. It might be the things that you see yourself saying no to. But my invitation to you is the same as Paul's to those people. You have no idea how generous God is towards you. You have no idea. You may be sitting here and saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've done this again. I've made my life all about me and I've made myself a God again. I just prayed about this, whatever, four hours ago when my kid was driving me crazy and we're trying to get ready for church. You may be so frustrated with yourself that once again you have arranged your schedule, your finances, your sense of self, all of your relationships based on what you decide. In that moment, the same forces that would seek to murder Paul would come, with, come to you with stones in their hand to bury you under a pile of shame. And here is the good news that Paul told them and that I'm going to tell you. God is unbelievably kind to you. And you should repent but know that you're turning around and coming home to a father who has been lobbing gifts your way every day without you even noticing it, knowing that you'd waste them because that is how kind and generous he is to you. And so when you come home, when you turn around and you see the crucified God, you will see the God who has picked up all the suffering that you ought to to have, that you feel like you deserve, and has instead offered you in exchange a place as his son or his daughter. Paul and Barnabas rend their garments because they worshipped a God who would have his body rent in two for you. That is the goodness of God. And this morning you should come home to him and find in him the kind of healing that will put back together every dark place in you until the very end. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, there is no one like you There is no one like you. We misunderstand who you are all the time. All the time. We, we ascribe to things or to people positions of power and worship in our lives that only you deserve. We, we often can't even understand when it is we've done what is right and what is bad. We forego all suffering in your name because we we think that suffering is a sign that you've done something wrong instead of seeing you, the God who suffered 
on our behalf and calls his people to follow him, to be like him. God, we've, we've invited people, everyone, to sacrifice their offerings to us. And Father, I pray this morning for, for everybody who is trapped in a life of worship of false gods. People, people who have loved you and trusted you for a long time, but have just wandered down so easily, starting, starting on a road that looked like the right one, and they've just wandered off into a life devoted to themselves. And Father, I pray for people who have never known and trusted you, who have lived their entire lives just pursuing what they thought was the right thing, which was their own comfort and indeed glorification. And Father, I pray that our eyes would be drawn to the cross, that we would see there your own generosity that you poured out for us gave to us while we were still enemies, while we were still lobbing our own stones and picking up our own weapons, while we were opposed to you, you died for us out of the supreme act of generosity of which the the rains and the harvest are the barest and minimal reflection. And Father, I pray that all of us in this room might today have our eyes refocused on you, that you would be the ultimate thing of worth in our lives. And that following you wherever you're going, proclaiming, heralding, walking down the street and saying you have to see how good and how kind and how generous this God is, that that would be the true desire and delight of our hearts. Father, I pray that you would free us into that. And for all of those who are, who are experiencing the suffering of opposition from the kingdom of darkness, God, I pray that you would remind them of your own worth and that you would comfort them by your presence. That they would know that being by your side is the right place with the right outcome, which is fellowship with you. Lord Jesus, we need you without end. Deliver us today and every day so the words that we prayed earlier might be true in our lives and in our hearts that yours really is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.